Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. So, uh, what would you like to schedule our chit-chat for the day to be? You know, I don't know. We didn't plan ahead of time. We talked too much before we started recording. So now I'm like, well, what, what's there to talk about? Probably not much other than the stories at hand, which I'm going to be honest with you. I just want everyone to, you know, buckle up. My story for the week, a little bit long. Not going to lie. I got into it and I was like, shit, there's a lot of information. Mine is, so. mine's pretty average. I would, I would say... I think so. The page length is pretty average, you know. I wrote, I did all the notes last night after my four and a half hour test. Very fun. Oh, are you like, are you like in school or something? No, I just decided to test myself yesterday morning to see how long I could do a wall sit. <laughs> <laughs> she actually just took a bunch of BuzzFeed quizzes. Yes, yes. Turns out I am a uh, Team Jacob uh dog person my fruit is a uh banana (laughs) maybe uh one of my favorite buzzfeed quizzes is like what your favorite bread says about you or something like that and it just asks you a bunch of different questions about bread interesting i'd like to know i feel like my favorite type of bread is like some sort of crusty bread with a soft inside i guess like a baguette Mm -hmm. uh i like anything that they give you at a restaurant so i like a soft roll i like a breadstick and i love a good biscuit and emphasis on the good part it has to be a good biscuit i'm looking at you cracker barrel there's no flavor where is the flavor there is no flavor in the biscuits if i have to put extra butter on it it just is not going to work for me. Now, Bojangles, their biscuits, flavorful. Okay. They put they bake it with the butter on it. I have a sincere question. Me and Brandon have had this debate, actually, many a many a time. What are your thoughts on Chick-fil-A biscuits? Have you ever had one? Okay, so I have had a Chick-fil-A biscuit. The biscuits are pretty decent. They're not extra flavorful but it's okay because the chicken is so flavorful now i am a chick-fil-a biscuit stan okay they're fucking delicious Mm -hmm. they're a little sweet i think they're yes they are a little sweet i think they're extremely flavorful i've come to like if i'm gonna get breakfast in the morning i prefer chick-fil-a even just because i like the biscuit better even over a bohanglaise biscuit at this point whoa i know Whoa, whoa, whoa. I've come to this conclusion. Brandon thinks it is like a blasphemous statement. He hates Chick-fil-A's biscuits. But you know what? I can't help it. They got good biscuits. Uh, you know what? I do like their biscuits now. It just depends on the day for me. A lot of times I don't go to Chick-fil-A because I get there and the line is too long. And oh, I yeah. just, I can't do it. I do that. I can't do it. And also... I'm one of those people, if the line is long, I would rather just park my car and go inside. And right now, because of the coronavirus, Chick-fil-A is closed on the inside. So you have to go through the drive-thru. It's what you do. Stress You get the app. I have not sat in a Chick-fil-A line in probably two years. You get the app. You order it while you're driving, right before you get there. Now, the while you're driving part, maybe that's probably, you shouldn't do that. I was going to say, that's a little probably dangerous. That. But you order it on the app, and then you either click curbside, which is my preferred method, because you don't have to get on a card, they just bring it to you. Or, you you know, you choose the, you go pick it up. So now, even though the inside is closed, you just kind of go stand out there for a second, they bring it out to you, you go back to your car, shit's done. It's delicious. You got it before all them bitches in the drive-thru. They're all asking, how did Taylor get her Chick-fil-A biscuit before me? And I'm flipping them off, saying, fuck y'all. And then the Chick-fil-A employee comes out and says, please don't say fuck in our parking lot. We're a Christian establishment. (laughs) My pleasure. But yeah, you should do that. I mean, I do have the Chick-fil-A app. Uh, I don't, I just don't go to Chick-fil-A that much. I'm going to be honest. I do have like every app you can get. Like if there's a restaurant, I probably have the app. Me too. My coworker. My coworker makes fun of me. I'll be like, do you have the app? And she's like, no, I can't download all these apps, Sydney. And I was like, but you need to. Because the more you use it, the more coupons they'll send you. So you're saving money. 
the app cost zero dollars. Uh-huh. And I refuse to wait. I absolutely refuse. If a Starbucks doesn't allow me to use the app, there's absolutely no way I'm getting coffee from that Starbucks. This is true. The only exception to the rule is if I happen to pull up and there's like Nobody. zero people in line. True, true. Yeah, get but. the app. Especially for like Chipotle. Oh, that shit's so quick. I can, one time I timed myself, I got out of the car, into the Chipotle, got my stuff, and was out within one minute. It was beautiful. Yeah, just get the app for anything. And the more you, you buy things, if you know, they'll give you a coupon. You, and they always give you a birthday coupon yeah, as well. You get points but, and you get a free chicken biscuit. This is true. This is true. But today's episode is not about biscuits <laughs> or, you know, Chipotle or even apps. Our theme for this week. Oh, also, this is a podcast. Yep. <laughs> this is a podcast called This is Gonna Sound Weird. It's about all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. Specifically this week, it is about the good old days of killers, <clears throat> serial killers, true crime. Basically, anytime you're talking to your dad and he say is telling you that this country has gone to hell <laughs> and that, you know, life was great when he was growing up. Th- we're going to talk about why it wasn't great when he grew up. Yeah, pretty much. All right. I hope everyone can relate to that. Um, I hope that you have, uh, you know, an older man in your life that can tell you why the youth of America just got the crap end of the stick. Yeah. They say as back in the 70s and 80s shit was wild. They were having to, like, I don't know, hide under desks and shit from atomic bombs. Yeah, and everybody (laughs) was on cocaine. Everyone was on cocaine. Oh, yeah. So, like, what do you mean? Oh, what are the kids doing these days? Hitting a jewel and eating Tide Pods? It ain't that serious. No, it's definitely not. Jewels over cocaines. Oh, cocaines. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Yeah, we both are products of the D.A.R.E. program, so we're, we're pro. A won't have an attitude. A- attitude. I myself. E, I will educate me now. Push that. No. Is that how it goes? Push that attitude out the door. Push that attitude out yep. the door. <laughs> Don't push me. Don't press me. Don't call. No. Now I think I've gone into something else. No. No. Okay. Well, well. <laughs> We're going to cut that. Uh, yes, but we are products of the D.A.R.E. program, so we are here to say jewels over cocaine, and today over serial killers. Yeah. And uh, I go first, correct? Correct. Okay. So, these are my sources. We've got, well, I'll tell you who I'm. I'm doing mine on Rodney Alcala. Okay. So, my sources, wikipedia.com, uh, biography.com abcnews.go.com a close call uh, i'm not gonna read the la- the rest of the article because it kind of gives away you know the fun part but it's a close call oh the fun part yeah um and it was by is an article by amanda carr tim goran and anthony rivas scholaradvisor.com and there is uh, a 2020 episode that i think recently came out about him and I would actually like to watch it. I watched, like, a little clip, but, you know, I don't think... I didn't have time last night to watch the whole thing. But anyway, so picture it. It's 19... 19- oh, wow. Last night, were you procrastinating? Yeah. Researching? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was studying for a property exam for the past week, and I'll have you know, still didn't know shit about it. Ha-ha. <laughs> Good to know. So picture it. It's 1978. Your parents... Uh, are chilling at home, watching, you know, like, TV, nighttime TV. My parents were fairly young in 1978, so they was probably watching it with their parents. Uh, uh, I think my parents were probably, I think they were still in high school. Mine were children, probably, like, young children, I would assume. Uh, but on comes the show, The Dating Game. And oh, yeah. If you, if you I, don't, know what, I know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you don't know what this show is, uh, it's basically where they got, like, a young gal... She's bachelorette, you would say. And she would ask questions to three different men who were single as well. And they were hidden behind, like, a screen. And at the end of the show, she would choose one of the men to go on a date with. And all the expenses would be paid by the show. So, on this particular night in 1978, the host, Jim Lang, introduced 
a man on the show as a, quote, successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. Oh, that part. I think that with the show, they always do like kind of like windows. They make it a little Mm -hmm, cheeky, and then it also says between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. So that was like the description of him. And this man that was being described was named Rodney Alcala. And even though his fellow contestants they thought he was a little weird, uh, he actually won the competition because Cheryl Bradshaw, which was the bachelorette on the show that night, picked him to go on the date with. But following the end of the game, when Cheryl met him like in person, she said he was super creepy, and she ended up refusing to go on the date with him. So good for her. Yeah. That was really smart on her part. Uh-huh. Now, you may be wondering, who is Rodney Alcala? So, he was born... I actually wasn't. Well... This is the end of the episode. That, that was the whole story. Uh, so, he was born Rodrigo Jaquez Alcala Bucor in San Antonio, Texas, to a Mexican-American family in 1943. Now... In 1951, Alcala's father moved the family to Mexico, but three years after they moved to Mexico, he abandoned them. And so, at that point, uh, Alcala was around 11 in 1954 when his mother moved him and his two sisters back to America, and this time they moved to Los Angeles, California. And other than his father kind of leaving them, he had a good childhood, like his, you know, mother provided for him, you know. Basically, everything was good. There was no red flags, you know. A lot of people have, you know, maybe a dad or a mom who, you know, kind of leaves the picture. But other than that, he had a good childhood. And so, in 1961, at the age of 17, Alcala joined the Army, and he served as a clerk. But in 1964, he had what was described as a nervous breakdown, at which point he went AWOL and hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, back to his mother's home. Now, Fort Bragg is in North Carolina, correct? Yes, uh, I believe so. so. I've heard of it. He hitchhiked from Fort Bragg to California. <laughs> right on. So that is a long way. Um, and following this event, uh, I guess he was taken back to Fort Bragg or some military station, and he was assessed by a military psychiatrist, um, and he ended up being discharged honorably on medical grounds. And he was diagnosed with uh, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, malignant narcissism with psychopathy and sexual sadism comorbidities. So he wasn't necessarily like uh, diagnosed with that at first, but later on he had a few like different diagnoses, I guess, after they realized he had something going on. And so, he had all this floating around, which, you know, it's not great, uh, because he didn't, mm-hmm. no. I don't think he got treatment for any of those, especially the psych- the nar- malignant narcissism with psychopathy and sexual sadism, morbid- comorbidities, that sounds bad. Yeah, that, doesn't, that sounds kind of intense. It does. Uh, but uh, after all this, even with all this going on, he, you know, he was honorably discharged from the army or the military, whichever one, I can't remember. Well, the military was part. The army's part of the military, you know what I'm saying. But after this, he attended and graduated from UCLA School of Fine Arts, where he studied photography. And he later went to study film under Roman Polanski at New York University. So he was a pretty, you know, like wait, 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 like Roman Polanski? Oh uh, yeah. Or yeah, like the Roman Polanski. I don't know who that is, but yeah. Okay, Roman Polanski. If it is the one that I am thinking of, he was married to Sharon Tate, who you may remember from the Manson murders. She is one of the victims of Charles Manson. And then Roman Polanski, he has his own sort of issues with, uh, you know, having inappropriate relations with young women. Well, I assume it's him. uh, Because how many film people are named that? famous film yeah. people because that's why i was like that's why when you said it i was like wait a minute well clearly i didn't know who that was uh but yeah if you know that guy it was that guy um but it was around this time when he was hanging out with apparently a famous person that i didn't know about 
1968 when Alcala committed his first crime. So while living in LA, uh, a person called the police after they saw um, a man lure an eight-year-old girl named Tali Shapiro into his apartment. And the man was Alcala. And when the police got to the apartment, the girl was found raped and beaten with a steel bar, but she was still alive. But by the time they got there, Alcala had fled the scene. So, in order to evade the police and the arrest warrant that came from this incident, he fled to New York. And this is when he was studying film in New York was after he had already committed this crime. And while he was in New York, he was going by the name John Berger. And so, in 1971, he was still in the Northeast. He secured a counseling job at a children's arts camp in New Hampshire. And at this point, he was using a slightly different name of John Berger, but Berger with a U instead of an E. So. All right. I don't know why he thought that was going to be better. That's really going to be. That's that's like if I was like, you know, I'm going by Sydney, but it's Sydney with an I instead of a Y. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so in early 1971, the FBI added Alcala to its list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. And just a few months after the FBI released this, and I guess they released his photo as well, two children attending the arts camp noticed Alcala's photo on an FBI poster at the post office, and they reported it. And that led to Alcala being arrested and extradited back to California uh, to go on trial for the uh, abduction and like beating of Tali Shapiro. However, by the time of the trial, Tali Shapiro's parents had relocated their whole family to Mexico because they just didn't think it was safe in California anymore. And they refused to allow her to testify at Alcala's trial, which I guess they probably just didn't want her to have to like go back through the trauma of whatever had happened. But because Tali was the primary witness, the prosecutors couldn't convict Alcala of rape and attempted murder, so they were forced to allow him to plead guilty to the lesser charge of assault. Which I'm like, I don't understand, because I'm like, the police officer, like, do police officers not get to be a witness? They were literally went into his apartment and saw her be, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You had to ask your Myself. professors yeah. about that. Uh, But in 1974, just after serving 17 months, Alcala was paroled under the, quote, indeterminate sentencing program, and this allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they showed evidence of rehabilitation. Oh, God. However, Alcala was not, in fact, rehabilitated. Shocker. Uh, Rehabilitated. Uh, That's what I meant to say. And less than two months after he was paroled, he was arrested again, this time for assaulting a 13-year-old girl who had accepted what she thought was a ride home from him. And so, he was sentenced again, and, but just after two years, he was paroled again based on the same program. Which, I don't know much about this program, but I'm like... I assume at this point they were probably, the prisons were so overcrowded, they were just trying to get rid of certain people. But I'm like, clearly he wasn't rehabilitated the first time, not even close. And so you think this time is going to be different? I also, like, I have no problem with, you know, prison being a way to rehabilitate someone, but, like, rehabilitate someone for a nonviolent crime. Like, oh, you, you, like, you robbed somewhere but you didn't hurt anybody go ahead let those people out you know they probably learned their lesson yeah you know they smoked some marijuana they got arrested you know what i mean something something simple but he's out here assaulting children yeah i would also probably go out on a limb and say like rehabilitation like when you think rehabilitation you would think the prison like has a program in place i don't know if they even had programs Mm -hmm. or if it's just like kind of another word for a fancier word for good behavior i think it's probably a fancier word for good behavior because i mean we have rehabilitation treatment in prisons these days and they're not that good so i imagine that in the 70s they were probably non-existent yeah so after his second release in 1977 
Alcala's parole officer actually let him travel to New York City, um, which was odd because he was clearly a flight risk. Um, but he did come back to LA, and in 1978, the same year that he was on The Dating Game, he worked for a short time at the LA Times as a typesetter. Um, and during this time, he also began to, like, take photos of people. So he was convincing hundreds of young men and women that he was a professional photographer that would offer to photograph them for his portfolio, or he would also offer to photograph them, he would say, like, for some sort of contest. And people were willing to believe him because apparently he was tall and good looking. He came off as intelligent and he was charming and very persuasive, which he had credentials. I mean, he literally could be like, you know, I studied under this person. I graduated from UCLA, blah, blah, blah. And you would probably be like, oh, you know, he's not, he's like, he's a true artist. Um, but he was clearly just a creepy rapist. Because a lot of the pictures he took were sexually explicit. I think most of them were. Um, so, you know, he would, like, get girls to go out in the, you know, wherever and get naked for him so he could have, like, pictures of them. Uh, but he was more than just a creepy rapist. Uh, because on June 20th, 1979, a 12-year-old girl named Robin Sanso disappeared in the Huntington Beach area. And it was somewhere between the beach and her ballet class. Her body, though, was found 12 days later decomposing in the L.A. foothills. Her friend told the police that a stranger had approached them while they were walking on the beach and was asking to take their pictures. Um, the police were able to draw up a sketch based um, on what the girl reported. And I guess, I don't know, they probably assumed, you know, maybe it could be this guy. And so... When Alcala's parole officer saw the sketch, he recognized that it was Alcala, like, immediately. And so, following this, the police were able to obtain a warrant to search his mother's home in Monterey Park, and they found a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. And so, they were able to, you know, go look into the locker in Seattle, and when they looked in the locker in Seattle, they found an earring that belonged to Robin. So, I don't know if he was traveling back and forth from Seattle or what, but... I guess this was enough for them to arrest him because in July 1979, they arrested him and held him without bail. And in 1980, he was tried and convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of Robin. But his conviction was overturned by the California Supreme Court because during the first trial, the jurors had been improperly informed about his past sex crimes. So... He was tried again in 1986, and this trial was essentially the same as the first, but they left out the evidence of the prior sex crime information. Um, but he was again convicted and sentenced to death. So, you know, okay. But then in 2001, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals nullified the conviction in part based on another technicality in the case. So he had to be tried a third time. And this third time, by this point, DNA had advanced. And so, at this point, they were trying him for the uh, murder of Robin Samso. But with since they had his DNA, they were able to connect him to, a, like, a bunch of other different crimes. And so, it came out that he most likely committed a lot of other ones. And so, in 2010, he was again charged with the murder of Robin. And in addition to this, he was also facing charges of assaulting and strangling four women in California in the late 70s. They were Jill Barkham, 18, who was killed in November 1977. Georgia Wixted, who was 27. She was raped, beaten, and strangled uh, in December of 1978. Charlotte Lamb, who was 32, was killed in June 1978. And Jill, I think it's Jill... Parento was killed June 1979. So, during the proceedings, now this part's uh, something. So, during the proceedings for the charges of all those um, other women I just named, Alcala chose to represent himself. Um, so, what a narcissistic thing to do. Well, he. That reminds me of when. Ted Bundy did it. Yes. For himself. Yes. And I'm like, you piece of shit. Uh huh. And so, apparently, as his own attorney and himself, he spent five hours interrogating himself, playing the role of witness and interrogator, 
literally asking himself questions and answering. But when he would address himself, he would address himself as Mr. Alcala and use a deeper voice when he was, you know, pretending to be an attorney. Oh, my God. And it it went on. Like, they said he did that for five hours. Was this in court or, like, yes, like, outside of court? In court. I don't even know how the judge could, allowed that. I, could, uh, I don't know. I also can't imagine being, like, a member of the jury and be like, what the fuck? Also, yeah, like, what did you think I was going to come out of also, that? I think about, like, when you're a member of the jury, I think you get paid something ridiculous, like $8 a day. Uh-huh. So, you know, in the 70s, it was probably, like, 10 cents a day. Could you imagine sitting there listening to this motherfucker talk to himself for five hours, and you're over here, like, getting paid 10 cents? No, I would uh, be falling asleep. Uh, or just, like, just in disbelief. Like, I don't even know. Um, but yeah, he was questioning himself, um, but you know, it didn't work out for him because in February 2010, he was found guilty of all five murders and sentenced to death, uh, on March 2010. But there was a surprise witness at the penalty phase of the trial and it was his first victim, Tali Shapiro. So she ended up, I guess, being able to get her story out there um, when she was older which at the sentencing phase is when you can bring in like evidence of past like crimes and stuff but because you know before whenever they brought in the evidence of the past crimes that like threw it out but you can only bring that in at the sentencing phase which is kind of why or the penalty phase because if you are like a terrible person who's committed like a like tons of crimes then that can make it to where your sentence is longer uh, yeah, because, like, in the initial trial, you're basically trying to determine, is this person good or bad? And then once you determine that they're bad, yeah. you're like, okay, well, are we going to put them to death? Or are we just going to let them, like, rot in prison? Yeah. And so I guess, is that when, like, you bring yeah, in cause, people from the past to be like, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Like, let him burn. Yeah, because when you're trying him, you can only try him for, like, that specific thing. And it doesn't really matter that he, you know, committed crimes in the past. That can't, that's not allowed to sway the jury during that time because you know if that does come in and you are like the jury you're like oh well, he's already a piece of shit i'm sure he did this just because he did that even if he didn't mm-hmm. and the sentencing phase you know that's not a jury that's the judge and he's already guilty at that point it's just how long are we gonna keep him in here or whatever um but along with these murders that he was charged for in California, like those five, he was also thought to be responsible for a lot more. So, and these included Cornelia Crilly in 1971 and Ellen Hoover in 1977. And these were both in New York. And in 2012, he was extradited to New York and initially entered a not guilty plea on both counts. But then in December 2012, he changed the pleas to guilty because he wanted to be able to go back to California um, and so on January 7th, 2013, he was sentenced to an additional 25 years by a Manhattan judge. He was also named a person of interest in 2010 by Seattle police for the unsolved murders of Antoinette Whitaker and Joyce Gaunt. Um, and, you know, he rented that storage locker in Seattle and they actually ended up finding more jewelry in the locker of more victims. So, that's why I don't think they ever convicted him, but I mean, you know. And then in March 2011, investigators in Marin County, California, which is uh, just north of San Francisco, announced that they were confident that Alcala was responsible for a 1977 murder of Pamela Jean Lamson, who disappeared after making a trip to Fisherman's Wharf. She was going to meet a man who had offered to photograph her. He then battered her and her naked body was found in the Mary Co- in Marin County near a hiking trail. There were no fingerprints or DNA, um, so likely charges won't be filed against Alcala, but it pretty much fits his uh, MO. And then in 2016, he was charged with killing Christine Ruth Thornton in Wyoming. So, his exact murder count is unknown. Some authorities think it's around 50, but some think he could have killed as many as 130 people. 
Oh my god. And so he's now 77 and is located at Corcoran State Prison and his death penalty has been postponed indefinitely because of the moratorium that was um, instituted by California State uh, in 2019. So basically, I guess they're not, you know, doing uh, executions at this point. Indefinitely, it seems like. But that is the story of the dating game killer, uh, which is sometimes referred to Rodney Alcala. And the 2020 episode is just called The Dating Game, I'm pretty sure, or The Dating Game Killer, if you want to look that up. I want to say there might be, like, a Netflix documentary that's called, like, The Dating Game. And I think it's on this as well. It's very possible. He looks uh, interesting. He looks like a guy who thinks his shit don't stink. Um, Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And honestly, he's not that cute. He's really not. No. He's probably one of those artsy guys that thinks he's all that in a bag of peanuts. That's like, oh, you've never heard of this you know name x y and z band and you're like yeah i have heard of the beatles actually like everyone <laughs> on fucking planet earth has heard of it like you're not special yeah and he's got so. like in most of the pictures he's got like long hair like shaggy hair back in like the 70s and now in a lot of the pictures he's got like long curly hair like gray hair he yeah he thinks he looks good well thank you for that um you're welcome i'm looking at him right now he does look like he thinks he's all that in a bag of peanuts and he is god he's ugly oh yeah nowadays god yeah they described him as handsome in one of the things but i was like i'm not so confident yeah nope that's a no for me Mm -mm. all right you ready for my story yep all right so full disclosure i started researching this maybe six months ago when we did i believe it was highway stories or something or roadside Uh stories i started doing research for this and i was like this is a lot of information i don't have time for this so i just sort of kept all that information and then i decided last night because i also procrastinated Uh you know also because we're recording a day earlier than we normally do so normally i'm like tuesday's my day to research but we're recording on tuesday but i got into this and i was like damn just a lot of information. So I tried to paraphrase it. There's certain things I'm like, you know what? It needs to be said. But I will try to make it as brief and concise as possible. All right. So I am doing my story on William Bonham, a.k.a. the Freeway Killer. Have you ever heard of him? I feel like I definitely have. Besides the fact that I told I told you that I was doing the story. So I know you've heard of him at least once. I feel like I surely have on probably another podcast. I just don't recall specifics yeah i didn't know too much about him but i think it's because there are literally so many highway killers freeway killers roadside killers and they all have the same exact name yeah i feel like there's a lot of freeway killers out there we need to come up with another name but my sources are wikipedia murderpedia and a documentary on youtube from the channel Serial Killer Documentaries. And I will say, it's a little 30-minute documentary on YouTube. Very well done. I mean, it's like, the graphics are kind of shitty. It's just like pictures and it's like a robot talking. But the information, pretty Interesting. good. So, William Bonham was born in William Maddock, Connecticut on January 8th, 1947 to Robert and Elise Bonham. Bonham was... Both of his parents were alcoholics, and his father was also a compulsive gambler who physically abused both Bonham, his brothers, and his mother. Bonham's mother would often leave him and his brothers home with her father, who was a known pedophile, while she went to play bingo. And Bonham's mother would also often forget to feed her children, so they were often fed and clothed by sympathetic neighbors. And later on, neighbors report, like, yeah, the kids were always disgusting, running around in, like, ratty clothes. So, obviously, not a great, you know, didn't grow up with great parent figures. Uh So, the children were often placed in the care of their grandfather, who was a convicted molester, who had molested Bottom's mother when she was a child, so, as you can imagine, things did not turn out well, and Bonin's grandfather sexually abused him and his brothers. 
1953, Bonin's mother placed her sons in an orphanage in efforts to protect her children from both the grandfather's abuse and their own father's abuse. The orphanage was known for its harsh discipline, with some of the punishments cast down being, sorry, some of the punishments included severe beatings, enduring various stress positions, which I didn't know what that meant, but essentially a stress position is where they force you to apply pressure to a specific thing. So imagine like you, you know, going down into a squat and so you're putting all of your weight on like your calves and they would make you sit, be, do that for hours. The fuck? You know, so it's just like another way to... I guess, like, torture you. Uh And from what I understand about this orphanage, they would cast these punishments down for even the slightest infraction. Like, infractions. It wasn't like you did something really bad. It was, you know, maybe you didn't turn your homework in on time or you didn't make your bed this morning, so you're going to get beat. Uh They also would partially drown the children in sinks filled with water. So, essentially, they were waterboarding these children. And... This experience was so bad that Bonin refused to discuss his memories of the orphanage in his later life, but he did confess that he consented to sexual advances from older males only if the abuser would bound his hands behind his back. Interesting. At age 9, Bonin moved back in with his parents, and at age 10, Bonin was arrested for stealing vehicle license plates and was placed in a juvenile detention center Uh, and while there he was repeatedly physically and sexually abused by several people including his adult counselor so at this point he has been like basically constantly sexually abused Uh since the moment he was born once out of the juvenile correctional facility sorry i cannot speak today i'm so sorry bonin returned home and began molesting his brothers and other young boys in the neighborhood. He would lure many of them into his home with the promise of alcohol. And Bonin was also known to have committed several acts of robbery, petty theft, and grand theft auto at that time. In 1965, Bonin got engaged to a woman after pressure from his mother who wanted to suppress his homosexuality. Because you got to remember, it's 1965. Uh-huh. So... People were pretty intolerant at the time. And that same year, Bonin joined the Air Force, where he served five months of active duty in the Vietnam War as an aerial gunner. And from all reports, he was claimed to be a good soldier, but he also later confesses that his experience in the war is what instilled a belief in him that human life was overvalued. And it would also be later revealed that Bonin sexually assaulted some of his fellow soldiers at gunpoint, but this was after he was honorably discharged in October of 1968. Shortly after, he married his fiance, but as you could guess, the marriage did not last, and the couple soon divorced. And starting in November of 1968, at age 21, Bonin began sexually assaulting young boys over the course of four months. He had assaulted four boys between the ages of 12 and 18, and during these encounters, he bound or otherwise restrained his victims before sexually assaulting them. In early 1969, Bonin was arrested as he attempted to restrain a 16-year-old boy who he had lured into his vehicle. He was indicated on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation which i don't i don't quite know what that is uh, i assume it's just what it sounds like yeah <laughs> and one count yep yeah, probably probably we're probably not gonna get into it today and one count of child molestation against the five boys that he had abducted and assaulted bonham pleaded guilty to the molestation and uh forced oral copulation and was sentenced to the state hospital in January 1971. While detained at this hospital, it was revealed that Bonin possessed a higher IQ, and his IQ was around 121, 
and displayed traits of manic depression in addition to damage to the prefrontal cortex of the brain, Mm -hmm. which would likely reduce his ability to restrain any violent impulse, which, you know, we have seen that a lot with many serial killers. They have experienced some sort of, like, head injury. Uh And then, you know, it's always that front. I I think that one's, like, the judgment-making or, like, decision-making part of your brain. Yes, it's like when you're really frustrated and you want to slap someone across the face, that part of the brain tells you, no, you shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I guess he would just be like, yeah, do it. I want to do it. Yeah. Um, So, after two years at the prison, Bonin was sent out of the prison and declared unsuitable for further medical treatment, mainly because he would repeatedly engage in forceful forceful sex with other inmates and on june 11 1974 he was released from prison after doctors concluded he was no longer a danger to the health and safety of others uh-huh. which to me that sounds like obviously he is a danger if he is assaulting other people in prison yeah he can't even be around people where he's like being you know monitored in theory what makes you think he's going to be able to contain himself with absolutely no monitoring i don't know as we discussed in your story the prison system and the rehabilitation uh you know system was non-existent and what was there was obviously not good shitty just not good all around so On September 8th, 1974, Bonin picked up 14-year-old hitchhiker David McVicker in Garden Grove, California. Once David was inside the car, Bonin pulled out a gun and drove to a deserted field where he beat and raped David. Bonin then attempted to strangle David, but stopped after David began screaming. Bonin drove David home and told him, we will meet again. So David notified his mother and the police arrested Bonham and Bonham pleaded guilty to these charges and on December 31st, 1975, was sentenced to serve between 1 and 15 years in prison. However, three years later, on October 11th, 1978, he was released and put on an 18-month probation period. Which, obviously, that is insane. He has already had such a track record. Uh-huh. Why not leave him in there? Uh-huh. So, after prison, Bonin began working as a truck driver for a delivery firm. And around this time, Bonin frequented parties held by his neighbor, Everett Frazier. There, Bonin met uh, 21-year-old Vernon Butts and 18-year-old Gregory Miley, who would become accomplices in his highway murders. How do you, how do you just stumble upon people who are like, hey, you trying to kill somebody? Oh yeah, me too. And not only do you find one person to agree, you find two people. Yeah, well, it's interesting also because Bonin already had a history and a reputation of inviting young boys over with, like, the promise of alcohol. Uh Like, hey, I'll buy you some booze if you want to come over. But from what I understand, both, specifically Vernon Butts, already had uh, interest in, like, bondage mm. and you know violent sex but he they he had a criminal history so both of these men were kind of like runaway vagabonds uh-huh. from what i can understand but i think it's one of those things you just start hanging around and then eventually they just got really interested in it i guess you fill I out i, I guess answer. you fill people out and i guess you no know, there's crazy people out there and I'm sure he's not hanging around with the types of people I would be hanging around with. (laughs) No, no, no. No, certainly not. So. Which I guess, like, you know, me and you met each other and we love true crime. So I'm sure somebody out there is like, these girls are freaks. Yeah, that's also true. But when I met you, I thought you were a little too nice. So it took a while. Yeah, you gotta gotta feel me out. Uh You gotta feel me out. So. On May 28, 1979, the body of 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren was found partially nude in Agora, California. 
His throat had been slashed and he had been stabbed several times, but his cause of death was strangulation. Which, if you remember, Bonin had attempted to strangle David McVicker months mm-hmm. before. So his underwear, jeans, and severed genitals were discovered strewn across his body. And in mid-1979, Bonin was again arrested for molesting a 17-year-old boy in the coastal community of Dana Point. This was a violation of his parole, so Bonin was sent back to jail, but an administrative error committed prior to Bonin's scheduled court date resulted in his release. What? Mm-hmm. So, Bonin's neighbor, Frazier, who had all the parties mm-hmm. and introduced him to Butts, uh, picked him up from prison where he recalled Bonin saying the following, No one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen again. Which basically... You know, he's not going to leave a victim, uh-huh. uh, you know, so. August 4th, 1979, Bonin and Butts abducted 17-year-old Mark Shelton, who was walking to a local movie theater. Neighbors reported hearing screaming, leading them to believe that Mark had been taken by force. And Mark was raped with foreign objects, including a pull cue, causing his body to become Uh, enter into a state of shock which is what actually ended up killing him and his body was discarded in san bernardino county Mm. the following day bonin and butts picked up 17 year old marcus grabs who was hitchhiking from pacific coast highway they tied marcus up and drove to bonin's house where they sodomized beat and stabbed him a total of 77 times the hell His body was found the following morning in Malibu Creek. So as you can see, they start to get more and more violent. Uh And we'll get to that in a little bit. So on August 27th, Bonin and Butts abducted 15-year-old Donald Hyden. Donald was beaten, bound, and sodomized, then stabbed in the neck and genitalia and bludgeoned. Ultimately, his cause of death was strangulation heighten was last seen walking along santa monica boulevard at 1 a.m and his body was found by construction workers later the same morning in a dumpster located near the off-ramp of ventura highway now september 9th bonnet and butts encountered 17 year old david morillo biking to the movie theater they lured david into bonnet's van bound him, repeatedly raped him, bludgeoned him with a tire and iron, then strangled uh, with a ligature. They then threw his body along an embankment along Highway 101. So then I'm going to kind of, you know, you get the gist Uh of what's going on. But I'm going to give you the dates of the following just because I want to spare some of y'all from the details but as you can tell he has a the similar mo it's all young mm-hmm. teenage boys that he lures normally with the promise of a ride or money or alcohol and then rapes and kills them in a very violent manner but uh, september 17th they pick up 18 year old robert christopher weristek November 1st, Bonin and Butts abducted and killed an unidentified young man, and they lift his body around State Route 99. Approximately four weeks later, Bonin abducted and strangled 17-year-old Frank Dennis Fox. December 13th, uh, they abducted and killed 15-year-old John Frederick Kilpatrick, and on January 1st, 1980, Bonin beat and strangled 16-year-old Michael McDonald. Then on February 3rd, Bonin and Gregory Miley picked up 15-year-old Charles Miranda. So, just a few hours after uh, the two found... Sorry, just a few hours after they murdered Charles Miranda, they found... 12-year-old James McGade, 
who they also abducted and killed. And at this point, the people of Southern California are, like, at a very heightened state of terrifying. Oh, yeah. Because all of these are happening very quickly and all in the same little area. So the killer is, the unknown killer is dubbed the freeway killer. And in order to minimize the chances of his victims escaping from his vehicle, Bonin removed all the inner handles from the passenger side and rear doors of his van and stowed ligatures, knives, and household tools throughout the vehicle. Which, that reminds me a lot of Ted Bundy. I was about to say and that. And how, how he did that with his vehicle, uh-huh. where once they were in, they couldn't get out. Now, on February 4th, Bonin was arrested for violating the conditions of his parole, and he was released on March 4th. Ten days later, he abducted and killed an 18-year-old, Ronald Gatlin, and his body was found the following day in Duarte. One week later, on March 21st, Bonin lured 14-year-old Glenn Barker into his van, uh, and his body would later bear in, sorry, bear evidence of numerous burns in his neck, which were most likely from a lit cigarette. At 4 p.m. the same day, 15-year-old Russell Rugg was abducted from a bus stop in Garden Grove, and his body was later found in Cleveland National Forest. Now, on the evening of March 1980, Bonin offered 17-year-old William Pug a ride home from his neighbor's party so if you recall he often went to uh fraser's apartment and so he offers william a ride home so the two leave together and on the ride back bonin asks pug whether or not he would engage in sex with him and this makes pug very uncomfortable and he kind of like panics and you know quickly answers like i don't you know i mean Uh i don't know And then the two sit in silence for several minutes. Then William attempts to leave the vehicle once Bonin had slowed the vehicle down at a stoplight. But in response, Bonin grabs William's collar and drags him back to the passenger seat. According to William, Bonin then confided in him that he enjoyed abducting young male hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday nights, whom he then restrained and abused before strangling them to death with their own t-shirts. William recalls Bonin saying if you want to kill someone you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim so Bonin however did not assault William because the two had been seen leaving the party together oh yeah so William Pug was spared however in May 1980 Bonin invited 18 year old James Monroe to move into his apartment and the two began engaging into a consensual relationship which you know later on there's some speculation about like okay you lived with this man like did you know were you complicit Uh but uh that wasn't really like too big in any of the documentaries that i you know watched but i did want to note that that he did have a partner at some point So by this time in 1980, the freeway killer was receiving a lot of media attention and a $50,000 reward for information regarding the highway killer and anything that could lead to the conviction of the killer was announced. So Bonin would collect newspaper clippings regarding the highway killer or the freeway killer and kind of made like a shrine to himself. And May 1980... William Pug had been arrested for auto theft and was held there uh, in the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse. There he overheard details regarding the freeway killer and from the recommendation of his counselor shared the information he had regarding Bonin uh, but omitting his involvement with Bonin himself. Mm. The police began surveying Bonin on June 2nd, 1980. That same day, Bonin and Monroe met and persuaded 18-year-old Stephen Well to accompany him to his apartment on the promise that he'd be paid 
$200 if he allowed himself to be bound prior to engaging in sex. Once home, Bonin raped, beat, and strangled Stephen before driving his body over to Butts' apartment mm-hmm. to be viewed. Which is obviously, like, I feel like William Bonin is definitely the mastermind behind all of this. Uh-huh. But, I mean, Butts, he is not innocent in the slightest. Because no. Bonin drives over his victim's body and it's like look at this i've got us another one. Oh, that's and then the two like discuss how they're going to yeah. dispose of the body now on june 11th police followed bonin throughout the hollywood area as he tried and failed to lure multiple boys into his van finally bonin picked up 17 year old uh harold tate and bonin drove them to a desolate area and parked police approached the van and found Bonin in the act of raping Harold. Then Bonin is arrested and over several days is questioned and confesses to the killings of over 21 boys. But if I'm going to be honest, I think his victim count is far higher. Oh, yeah. I would say so. He, He expressed no remorse over his actions, but he did demonstrate extreme embarrassment and regret over being caught. I'm sure. Investigators connected the brutal nature that Bonin exhibited towards his victims uh, that had a similar feel of, like, how drug addicts required a greater Hmm. increase of dosage in order to reach a desired sense of euphoria. So, essentially, like, raping his victims was not enough. He, every time, had to make sure his victims suffered more and more in order for him to be satisfied yeah because if you're an addict you know the first time basically like the first time you try let's say meth they always say that they're chasing the same high they got the first time which is nearly impossible which is why you know they do more and more and more and eventually that could kill you and here i guess it's, it's the same concept just with whatever high, quote, high you get from torturing and murdering people. Yes, exactly. And Bonin also confessed that he felt an intense sense of excitement as he searched for his victims, which I think was part of the thrill for him. And after Bonin's confession, police issued warrants for Butts, Monroe, and Miley, and all of them were sentenced to a life in prison. However, Butts would later uh, complete suicide in prison. So Bonin was put on numerous trials for several of his crimes and was later placed on death row where he remained for 14 years. Then on February 23rd, 1996, Bonin was executed by lethal injection at San Quentin Prison And he was actually the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the state of California. Oh, wow. That, like, seems Mm -hmm. fairly quick. Like, he wasn't on death row for very long. Oh, no. Which is, like, I mean, we think, like, 14 years is not, like, that is long. But most people who stay on death row, like, they stay on there forever. Yeah, and, I mean, it's you, which I guess... I don't know. I, I mean, I know why they usually keep them on there for so long is because, like, they want to exhaust every single appeal option potential that this person is innocent before they execute them, obviously. But, I mean, maybe with a case like his where it's just, like, there's absolutely no way, like, he didn't do this. Or even if he didn't do some of them, he did, you know, enough to where it would warrant the death penalty like maybe it's a little different and they could have already exhausted all his appeals and everything and they were like well you know because like with my guy he was on death row but he uh you know got out on parole like or not not got out on parole his case was like able to be appealed on technicalities like a couple times even though he still did the crime technically and i think it also kind of depends on the political climate true At the time, like, he was executed in 1996, which, I mean, like, 
different political climate. You got to think about who the administration is at the time. Whereas, like, you know, like, a good example is under the Trump administration, more people became, like, were executed. People who had been on death row for quite some time. Yeah. Like, they're, they were brought up for execution again. Whereas, if the administration changes, you know, the policies might change as well. True. But his final words were, that I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. I feel that it sends the wrong message to the youth of the country. Young people act as they see other people act instead of as people tell them to act. And I would suggest that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, that they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. What? So basically, he never you know, shows any remorse of what he's done and, and, you know, basically just takes this as a time to be like, hey guys, I think you should take my advice on some things because I make great life decisions. Like, just listen to me. Oh God. Uh, so his body was cremated and his ashes were spread into the Pacific Ocean because none of his relatives bothered to come to his execution. So that is the story of William Bonin, a.k.a. the Freeway Killer. Now, whenever you were telling your story, I just was thinking, I was like, our stories took place, like, around the same time. And I'm pretty sure other killers were active around the same time, like, especially in California. Could you imagine living in California at that time with all of these serial killers? I would be a... I would just be in the shambles constantly. No, I could never imagine that. Which also, okay, so this whole episode is called The Good Old Days. And so my arguments with my dad every time he's like, you know, life was so good when I was growing Mm -mm. up. I always name different serial killers. But my dad has also pointed out that this all happened in California. You know, he's like, nothing bad happened in North Carolina. Life was great in North Carolina, which also, I mean, my dad, you know, growing up from the South, he's like, it's because California's filled with sinners. Yeah, I was going to say, we know how our uh, families feel about (laughs) California. (laughs) But, like, it's true in the fact that all of these serial killers were, for the most part, in California or just the western part of the United States in general, like, you know, Ted Bundy was in uh, Washington, I believe. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a lot of West Coast, which my theory is that today's times aren't any better than those times. While those times are terrible, I think that the types of ways, like, so these people who used to be serial killers, I would almost argue that today they would be more likely to be more like a mass shooting situation. I feel like it's almost switched to that where mass shootings now have become more the norm and serial killers have, like, tapered off. And so, I don't know what yes, the switch Yes, because was. I feel that, I think it's partially because our law system has changed. True. Like, if you commit a murder, chances are you're going to get caught yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah, it's not going to be as easy to get away with it as it used to be. But I would also say, like, the way that law enforcement communicates is different because before if you committed a crime in one jurisdiction and then you committed a crime in another jurisdiction even though it would be you know probably the same exact crime or very similar mo the different police stations were not communicating Uh so they weren't sharing information so it was harder to pinpoint who was doing it and also obviously the way that we understand mental illness and different people's mo's it's a lot easier to pinpoint like when you watch criminal minds and they're like we are dealing with someone who experienced this sort of trauma as a child Uh and you know they're choosing this because of this and this is the type of killer that we're dealing with we just didn't have that information back then so well i argue that the good old days were not so good after all fathers Mothers, grandmas, grandpas. Basically, anybody who was born before the year 1980. 
your shit stinks and I'm sick of y'all acting like it don't. It stinks just as bad as it stinks now. Maybe worse. Maybe not. But at least equally stanky. Yeah. And back then, the news only came on like once, maybe twice a day. Right. Now, the news is on every day, all day. So, yeah, you can really just sit and bask in the shit that is the world. Whereas before, you only got it at 6 o'clock, and if you missed it, you missed it. Yes, but these stories were uh, pretty bad. Yeah, I'm sorry. We, maybe we should have put a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode, but it's a true crime podcast. You know what you're getting into, correct? True. I feel like these were pretty, um, they were two classics that you would hear on a true crime podcast. I've heard mine, and I'm pretty sure yours, on multiple true crime podcasts. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and our theme the next time we podcast, which will not be next week because I am going on vacation. I know. So, you know, next week, while the rest of us are slaving away at work or school or wherever you are slaving away at, uh, Taylor is going to be relaxing on the beach. Thank God I need it because I am currently slave. Well, I was slaving away before we started podcasting. But the next time we come back, our theme is surprise. It's a surprise. Surprise. Surprise me. So we're going to be talking about any topic that her and I decide. So it could be, it probably is going to be different. Maybe it'll be the same. I don't know. But any story that strikes our fancy is what we're going to be talking about next week. Not next week, damn it. The following week. Yep. So no episode next week. I'm so sorry. Sorry. I don't know what you'll do with your Friday. Probably just sit and cry while I'm drinking beer on the beach haha actually i'll just be driving to the beach probably worried about texts at boarding (laughs) this is true this is true but you know follow us on instagram uh so that we can remind you that there's no episode for next week our instagram is gonna sound weird pod follow us on you know tiktok twitter all the shit really Mm -hmm. facebook we have a group you join it yeah Follow us on all our shit. Also, tell a friend. If you liked this podcast yeah. and you want to hear some more and you want more people to hear it, tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell a coworker. Tell the random man at the gas station that says he wants to make you his queen. Say, listen, <laughs> if you're going to get uh, with me, you got to listen to this dope-ass podcast. Exactly. Uh, is that it? Probably. That is it. Right. Uh, everyone stay weird. Have a good two weeks, week, whatever. We'll see you when we see you. You'll hear us when you hear us. Yep. Goodbye. Goodbye.